Here at Illinois Rights Life Action, we are really excited to share that we've been invited to be a part of SLS this December 30th through January 3rd in Phoenix, Arizona. SLS is a conference presented by Focus that brings together real-world models of missionary discipleship. Speakers will share the hope, encouragement, and direction we need to seize the moment and live out Christ's truth with conviction. Life Chat Podcast will actually be broadcasting live from SLS in Phoenix, and we want you to join us there. Register at sls20.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. See you there. You're listening to the Life Chat Podcast, a project of Illinois Right to Life Action. Hey, pro-lifers. My name is Mary-Kate Knorr. I'm the executive director of Illinois Right to Life and the spokesperson for Illinois Right to Life Action. Life Chat Podcast is a project of Illinois Right to Life Action. So I'm here with Dr. Steve Jacobs. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, Steve, we just call him Steve around the office. I hope that's okay. Yep. Uh, Steve just joined our team at Illinois Right to Life as our program director. And he comes from an incredibly interesting academic background. And that's, we're sort of going to, I think, just jump right into that because I really want him to share what his experience was in academia and the research that he did. He um, is an alum of Northwestern Law School and also the University of Chicago. And I think he had, in addition to the research that he did, which is incredibly remarkable and interesting given just in general, these conversations that we have in the pro-life movement about when life begins and who should be able to make that declaration and personhood and some of these other things. Um, It's interesting from that perspective, but his story is also interesting because he had this really, I don't know, unfortunate or really just not a very pleasant experience in academia. And um, so so I think, Steve, if you just kind of want to jump right into talking a little bit about your, you know, how you sort of came around to studying what you did at the University of Chicago. Um, And if you want to even start with undergrad, that might be good. And then we can kind of go into detail a little bit about that. And then I'd like from there to talk specifically about pro-lifers in academia. How can we support them? And also, are they there? You know? Right. So thank you very much for having me, Mary-Kate. So it really all started at uh, Northeastern Illinois University, where I was finishing up my undergrad. Um, I took a series of ethics classes with uh, Dr. Daniel Milsky, who was a fantastic professor. Uh, He had a really profound uh, impact on me. At one point, I actually went vegetarian for 15 months. (laughs) I watched uh, um, a slaughterhouse film in in class. Oh, my gosh. And uh, the leather shoes on my feet got a little too hot. So I I know this will sound, sound strange, but I took them off, walked to my car in my socks, and I didn't eat meat for the next 15 months. Wow. So needless to say, I was in a, a very uh, interesting stage in my life where mm. I was very easily influenced. But uh, we, we talked a lot about personhood and human rights. This was the first time I really engaged with these subjects in a meaningful way. I was reading a lot of great writers. And I found it interesting that in all of our discussions about personhood, especially in the United States, how it was this expansive concept that it started off with white male landowners, and then it became white males, and then it became white people, and then it became all people. So I found it interesting that personhood, especially as it relates to animal rights, that what we do is we extend personhood to certain 
non-humans who are deserving of recognition under the law. So we've actually seen this in Argentina, in different countries where we'll recognize orangutans or dolphins or different non-humans as persons. So personhood is meant to be humans plus certain non-human but human-like animals. So I found that to be something really interesting that abortion seemed to be the one place where we tried to deny the personhood of humans. The other thing I noticed was in human rights concepts that these weren't being used in the pro-life debate. So if we know that all humans are deserving of rights, and if we know that how you balance rights collisions when one person's right comes in conflict with another person's right is that you try to balance those rights and see which right is more important. So this is probably most clear in human sacrifice. So you might have the right to practice your religion, but my right to life is more important than your right to practice your religion, which is why you can't uh, perform a ritualistic human sacrifice on me. So these were two huge threads that I just noticed they weren't in the abortion debate. I didn't hear people talking about them. So what I did notice, though, was the more I studied the abortion debate, it was just so contentious. And it felt like people weren't honestly engaging in discussions, but were rather just parroting talking points. And some of my earliest ideas about this research was to actually measure the degree to which in abortion discussions, people just use talking points. Like I heard a lot, you know, a a zygote or a fetus is no different than a toenail cell. And I found it interesting. I wouldn't hear elbow cell or liver cell or skin cell. At this time in 2009, I heard toenail cell a lot. So it just felt like people weren't engaging honestly and they were just kind of using these talking points to get around having a meaningful discussion. Um, So it was this early interest that I actually brought to the University of Chicago when I started their PhD program in 2009. And I brought this to a professor. Um, He's since passed away. He had taught a class called Qualitative Methods in the Social Sciences. So this was basically a survey course for us to figure out what might we want to do for our master's or our PhD research. So what I proposed was figuring out a way to to research the abortion debate. Unfortunately, the professor refused. He wouldn't even let me do a course paper on the abortion debate. He said it was way too controversial. When I explained the controversy was part of what interested me, he said again, absolutely not, you can't do it. And this started what was basically a four and a half year process of me trying to find somebody who would support my research. Every peer I talked to, they told me, you can't do this research. You'll never get a job. Every professor I talked to, they said that, you know, it's not an interesting topic of study, even though I saw other people doing really like clearly pro-choice abortion research, trying to show the positives of abortion. So just me trying to figure out the dialectic, to figure out the structure of the abortion debate, there was no interest in it. And it was pretty clear it was because some of my ideas were not not necessarily in lockstep with the pro-choice ideology. Where where were you at at this point? And I guess on a personal level, throughout all of this, uh, you know, your study and coming around to some of these ideas and then the realization that this was not an area of study that was necessarily welcome at the University of Chicago. Where were you personally on the issue? I mean, when when do you think in your life you 
looked at yourself as a pro-life person. Yeah. And that that's really hard because I was in such, I mean, I've heard it compared to, I've had some people suggest it was almost like I was Daniel in the lion's den, that I was in this such a hostile place that it was even hard for me to to really be open about like identifying myself as pro-life. What I what I did was instead of putting an ideology on myself, I just saw it as I recognize that fetuses are humans from the moment of fertilization and based on rights calculations, I see it as a human rights violation. So I was able to almost take a step back and make it seem like, hey, I'm just defending truth. I'm just defending positions. Mm -hmm. It's not about me. It's not about what I believe. It's about this calculation. It's not that I'm a mathematician who believes in math. I'm just letting you know that two plus two equals four. So that that was one of the things that I kind of had to divorce myself from my own identity. Right. Is there, do you think there's any other issue that you ever saw while you were a student that is treated quite the way this perspective that you took on the abortion issue was treated? No, not, not in my experience. I mean, I, I heard a lot of radical things mm-hmm. early on. I mean, I remember in 2009, 2010, seeing signs around campus as to whether or not pedophilia is the new queer. I, I saw, you know, very radical ideas being spread and they were all dealt with in good faith and they were good, given credence. But there was something about even suggesting that there's an alternative to the dogma of the pro-choice side. It was almost as if you were instantly cast as a religious zealot, uh, a Christian who is trying to, you know, subvert women, subvert gender equality. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I got to be honest, it it was it was it was really hard. I mean, I know I, I don't know how much I've actually tapped into how hard it was. Like I I have the memories of, of telling myself and telling other people that I don't think I could look myself in the mirror if I don't do my dissertation on the abortion debate. That there's something about when you feel that there there's something that genuinely interests you. And, you know, grad school in and of itself is something that you're supposed to go there to pursue a genuine interest. You're not going there to get rich. You're right. going there because you have some weird desire to focus on something for years of your life because it just so genuinely interests you that it, it just like burns on your mind. Mm-hmm. And so I had this genuine interest. And it was also the area where I had the most expertise. So I was doing this other research at the time and I, I was terrible at it. I, I didn't even want to read basic papers on it. Mm-hmm. I had no understanding because it was like pulling teeth to get me to do any work mm-hmm. on it because every moment felt like a waste of time because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. So, so yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You basically had this insatiable desire to do research on the abortion issue. And the title of your dissertation by the end was the debate between abortion rights and fetal rights. Is that right? That's right. So do you, I mean, I guess Walk me through the process of, so this was 10 years of your life that you were working on this one, this one dissertation. Is that right? That's right. So can you kind of walk me through the process of, you know, what is the research that you actually did? Um, I personally think that the whole story with your advisor and why you initially chose that person and how you, because I mean, it was very clear. Was there anyone in the circle who was pro-life at all at this point? No, and no one on my dissertation committee, my ultimate committee was pro, not only were they not pro-life, they were all uh, strongly pro-choice and they talked about it at nearly every meeting we had. So it it was abundantly clear and they even 
endured a bit of anxiety even doing something that, and let me be clear, like you said, it was balancing abortion rights and fetal rights. It's not like I, I did some, you know, big screed on how, life manifesto you know, or yeah, something. like yeah, abortion is yeah. a human rights violation. Right. Like, even though that was my personal calculation, that's not at all what it was about. I mean, it ultimately recommended a compromise that I actually don't support myself. And that's because it doesn't matter what I believed as, as a person. It mattered what the work called for. And, you know, to take a step back, so basically halfway through my PhD program, five years in, I finally started working up the courage. I had taken a class as well as TA'd a class for a professor named Rick Schwader. Um, I held him in the highest regard because he was just this fearless academic. He he would bring up subjects that no academic would normally um, in, in our class. So we took a class uh, called cultural psychology. I ended up TAing it more times than anyone else. And he's taught the class for decades. So a big focal point of that class is actually on female genital modification. So I noticed how careful he was with language, that it wasn't female genital mutilation or cutting. You know, he was very careful about language and he wanted us to take a different perspective on something that we already had a gut reaction to. And I just thought his approach, uh, his research methods, that it would lend itself well to me doing research on the abortion debate. I also, everybody I talked to, they said, if anyone will be willing to go after a sacred cow, it's Rick Schwader. Mm-hmm. Like that was his reputation. I mean, he had he had actually uh, defended the Tuskegee experiment at one point. He's he's done classes on if somebody asserts it, deny it. He's talked about the bright side yeah. of slavery. Different times. I mean, he is fearless. And it was only through him that I thought I could even broach this research. Uh, so sure enough, I met with him in, uh, I believe it was like the spring of 2014. I actually told him that I wanted to go to law school as a way to start this research, that I felt like I couldn't do it in earnest without having a legal perspective. I also personally thought maybe that would suggest that I was really serious about this. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would signal to him that like this is a meaningful project. And I told him as well as uh, the dean at the University of Chicago, I wasn't even going to sit for the bar because they were worried that I was going to get a high paying job in law and not come back. I made promises and I I kept them up. Uh, I'm not an attorney. I'm a lawyer, which means I have my law degree, but I'm not an attorney. I can't practice law, much to the chagrin of my family who wants free legal work. (laughs) Yep. Um, Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, So I was in this place where he he supported it full... uh, full-throated support of it. He understood how I felt about the human rights approach. He just doesn't necessarily value human rights. He had actually written a lot about how human rights have this universalizing aspect that doesn't, you know, pay attention to certain cultures because he's a cultural psychologist. Mm. Yeah, female genital mutilation and human rights don't exactly go quite as comfortably together as I think most people right. would. But I mean, who says human rights are important? I mean, who says any right. of us have rights, right? Yeah, so right. That's certainly yeah, the exactly. kinds of conversations you have in academia, <laughs> um, which are very interesting oh, in a classroom uh, or in behind closed doors. But when you get out in the real world, it, it's a little more... People are a little more alarmed by things yeah, like that. Yeah, just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, so I started law school 
school in 2014, and what I found instantly was um, there were these negotiation and mediation classes. So I actually competed on the negotiation team. I ended up uh, going to Houston. I won the regional competition, so I went to Houston to compete in the national competition. I don't know if you can notice I'm a bit of a talker, so <laughs> that, that kind of lends well to my abilities. Um, but I ended up in this mediation program, and I thought this was an approach. I found my basically my methodology for doing this research on abortion. That's why I went to law school, you know, in part, and I found it. I thought it's all about using mediation, which it's called interest-based mediation, going deeper behind what your positions are and figuring out what your values are and what your worldviews are to see if you have some common ground. So I'd actually mediated disputes between landlords and tenants, small claims disputes at uh, state courthouses. So I had all this experience and I actually started with pro-life and pro-choice law students at Northwestern. And interestingly enough, I only wanted four males and four females and half pro-choice, half pro-life for like a little mini study. And I couldn't even find four pro-life students at Northwestern that were willing to participate. Amazing. So I had to, I had to have pro-choice people act as if they were pro-life, which obviously was oh a confound of the study. Wow. I couldn't find more than two. Do you think they weren't there or do you think they were just... Not willing to step out on something like this. I don't think there were many more than that there, yeah. but I definitely think the ones that I knew, I knew there were more than two pro-lifers yeah. pro right, right, right. out of, you know, a thousand students. Um, but they were certainly, it's another thing to out yourself because this was something where a pro-choice law student right. could be on the other side. And I don't think they had a lot of uh, appetite for it. And I even waited a couple months. This wasn't like just like a week study. Right. Like I was like trying to find people. So... Um, but needless to say, it went well. It, I ended up uh, meeting good people. I, I um, you know, just as a, a preview. So I ultimately asked people uh, when a human's life begins, right? The, mm -hmm. the big study uh, of uh, biologists around the world. And one of the first ideas or uh, seedlings for the idea was I'd given a speech in a public policy class where we learned about like public persuasion and written advocacy where we'd like write speeches for each other. Mm -hmm. So I gave a speech about the abortion debate. It was like one of my first speeches about abortion in public. And uh, I had said, there's a consensus of scientists that agree on when life begins, right? So he gives me my written speech afterwards. And next to that, uh, that claim, he just wrote source question mark. And at that moment, I was like, I'll get you the source. Oh, I'll get One you day, I'll source. get you the source. <laughs> um, it was just fortunate that, you know, I, I, that wasn't when I started the study. Um, when I started the study was my first step was to actually ask Americans, you know, is it an important question? Who do right. you think is most qualified to determine when a human's life begins? And as it turned out, over 80% said biologists. Yeah. So that's the real reason I started. But it, it was a right. funny moment. Like, it was yeah. almost like that light bulb went yeah. off. Like, oh, okay. Is that how, do we need to? Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Wow. <laughs> so you went through the process then of, um, you know, you found an advisor and began your research, I guess. You know, you began seeking out biologists that you could ask this question to. Um, I mean, everything you did was ethically and academically approved, right? Um, That's despite, right. Despite the upset of 
the administrators who were involved. Um, but can you talk about that process a little bit? Like, how did you actually go about reaching out to these scientists and what were the responses, some of the responses that you got? Um, and you know, then, I mean, you know, if you want to share the results of the study too, I mean, I think that's really the key point when we talk about this specifically that you, you did provide that source, um, you know, five years later, but you did, you provided the source. So. Sure. Uh, so in 2016, I graduated from law school. Uh, again, everybody was hoping I would go into law and that I'd go back on my word. I had no appetite for that. So in May of 2016, I graduated and I immediately got in contact with uh, my professor, uh, Rick, and we started working together. So he had actually helped me create the survey. It wasn't like I was just doing it in a vacuum wow. off on my own and he was like putting a rubber stamp on it. We were going over every jot and tittle of the questions and making right. sure like, is this and appropriate or is mm -hmm. it the here? I mean, we went through fine uh, detail. So I started by actually piloting the questions with uh, biology students at the University of Chicago. So there, there were some summer classes. So I went into these school, uh, into these classes and I, uh, I gave them these preliminary surveys. I met with biologists, uh, recent graduates from my school. I, I met with as many people as I could to decide design what would be an objective determination that both pro-life and pro-choice people would be comfortable with. Most of the people I consulted with were pro-choice. So we ultimately uh, uh, arrived at an instrument, a survey instrument that I had uh, sent out to thousands of biologists. Uh, it started off as just in America. So I built a list of several thousand biologists in America. I went to the faculty pages uh, and this was just sheer time and effort of me writing down what their name was, what their email address was, and then I emailed them directly this survey. So right away, first day that I actually sent it out, I got an email from somebody saying that they were, uh, that they basically wanted to sue, that they were going to try to shut down my survey, that they were contacting my school. Um, somebody from my ethics committee reached out and they said, you have to shut down the survey immediately, even though it had already been approved. Um, so then we had to have an, a meeting with the university research administration, as well as the legal department at the University of Chicago. So I was there with all the, the dean, all these representatives, and Rick was uh, there through phone. He was, he was away for the summer, so he was my biggest advocate. They, it definitely seemed like they were there trying to catch me riding dirty, trying to shut down mm -hmm. my study. And he was a fierce advocate for me because he knew that the IRB, which is the ethics committee, it's called an institutional review board, that they were trying to shut me down to control me. And he had actually written a lot about how these ethics committees overreach. So he's well known for writing wow. these, yeah, writing these essays, um, him with uh, Richard Nisbet about how that academia is basically, uh, you know, he's made the joke that Socrates, a famous philosopher who was known for challenging people with mm -hmm. questions, and they said Socrates, he said Socrates would be rolling around in his grave if he knew what lengths we have to go to just to ask questions, mm -hmm. you know. So this survey was just about objective biological questions. I didn't 
didn't ask people sensational questions like, is an abortion murder or is abortion the killing of a baby? These were just like, from a biological perspective, is the unification of an egg cell and a sperm cell a human organism? I mean, it was just very dry. What many would consider to be pretty basic biology in some circles, I guess. That's right. And a lot of biologists actually suggested that they were offended that I asked them such simple questions. Interesting. So they're almost like you're insulting my intelligence by asking these questions, not so because I know you did get some aggressive responses that they were like, what's your agenda? That's right. What you're saying is they were like, how what kind of research is this that you're making me ask these questions that I probably learned in high school. That's right. I mean, they made it seem like this is such elementary biology. Like, how could you even be asking this question? And anybody who's engaged in the abortion debate can say that, you know, I certainly experienced this on Twitter a lot, where half of the people are saying, of course it's a human. Everyone knows it's a human. And then the other half are saying, it's not a human. So it's like, wait, how do half of you say I'm ridiculous for even bringing up this question? Right. And then the other half are saying I'm 100 percent wrong right. for making this suggestion. Um, so in, in the beginning, so after he had defended me, I was allowed to continue my study. I, uh, so, the, so the first time it was shut down within days, started my start, study up again. They complained again, shut down again within days. So this time he told me, you know what, this is not part of an approved dissertation yet because I had just jumped back into this research after graduating. Mm -hmm. He said, take your time, do an approved uh, proposal, get your committee together, and then once we get that done, then you could do the research because I will have more cover. He basically said that the heat was getting too hot for him, but if I make it an approved study versus just a study by a P, and when I say approved, I don't mean by the ethics committee, I mean by my department. So at that time, I was a PhD student. He was suggesting that I should make it clearly my dissertation and make it a a dissertation proposal that's approved by a committee of four people. That's the first step before you get your dissertation. So basically, it's two steps. You get an approved proposal and then you get uh, you defend your dissertation and they approve it. Um, So he just wanted me to have more cover. I spent the next year not being able to do my research. I was just writing this 30-page proposal, which he had me change so many times. It was Mm -hmm. basically a year of editing a a 30-page document. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would try to push me away from the question of when life begins. And that was when I I definitely focused more on the mediation aspect. Mm -hmm. And I made that just one small part of it. Um, Now, what happened was I, I went through the, the uh, the uh, proposal hearing, it was approved. They said no changes needed to be made, no issues were raised. Yet within a week of that, uh, my professor Rick Schwader had told me that if I continued with that research, that he would not continue on my committee, and he'd actually recommend that I not receive my degree. So this was after a year of editing this proposal with you, and years prior to that, working with you fully aware that this was what the topic you were interested in. That's right. As well as him creating the survey with me. Like he, right. he knew what this was. He got it approved. And I I mean, I was flabbergasted to say the least. Yeah. I, I couldn't even believe it. I, I thought he was like joking with me at first. And he said, I thought I moved you away from this research. And I let him know. I was like, well, there's this email of a month ago. I was showing right. you I was still doing this survey. Like I was refining the survey. And he he 
basically told me he will not have his name go on a document that could be uh, cited by pro-lifers. He told me that I was damaging the reputation of the school. He thought I was tricking biologists. I mean, he he just threw everything at the wall to see wow. what would stick. And I mean, it was it was utterly devastating that I had spent so much of my my academic career afraid to do this you know and i finally found my courage i went into great personal expense borrowed a ton of money to go to law school had gone through all of this effort had just spent this year you know revising mm-hmm. this document so he'd approve it and then he just he just took it all away basically right. and i had only collected about one tenth of my data that i ended up with ultimately um and he, yeah um did he, did he give you any indication that something had changed over that week? Um, you know, obviously, so really what it was clearly was that other people then came into the picture and it wasn't just him anymore who was involved. Now it was this whole, um, you know, this whole board of people, this whole panel of people. Um, did he give you any indication of specifically what it was that changed for him in that period of time that he suddenly felt like he could know and I guess his argument was to you that it wasn't sudden that he had felt this way all along but it was very clear to you actions speak louder than words that was not where he was at until that particular moment right so trust me I've spent a lot of hours trying to understand this and Mm -hmm. I've I've moved past that um, because so one of my other committee members who basically was ended up being my guardian angel he ended up allowing me to continue my research so when I informed him about this he was just as surprised as I was I mean I remember the expression on his face where he's like he said nothing about this during the meeting when you were there nothing about this afterwards and I mean I had I had met with him in the intervening time because he was the biologist he was the expert Mm -hmm. um so i had met with him in the intervening time between when we had the hearing and when rick had told me that i couldn't continue Mm -hmm. and he was approving the final version of the biologist survey so he's like i just met with you two days ago to approve this and now you're saying you can't even do it like what about all the time I spent on this? I right. mean, he was just as surprised as I was. And he said, we have to meet with him because I have no idea what's going on. Like, there has to be more to this story. And sure enough, we had, we ended up in a series of meetings, the three of us. And he was just as gobsmacked, just as shocked as I was. And they, you know, they had a very contentious dialogue about it where um, he was basically trying to understand why Rick was doing this. And Rick basically threw every argument out there, you know, that I'm going to damage the reputation of the school, that I'm going to hurt the abortion debate somehow by moving it in the wrong direction. Wow. It, it, it was it, it was essentially clear. And then how how it ended up was he said, no, you take him as if I was like some piece of chattel or something right. to be thrown around as a piece. And he said, uh, if you want to support his research, you support it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to support it anymore. I don't have to. I have no obligation. And it, it was probably his frustration thinking that I would basically go in line with him. Like, he didn't understand how important this work was to me. So he figured as, you know, and anybody who's gone to grad school is well aware of this, uh, a graduate student, uh, school advisor carries a lot of power. 
a lot of power right. in a graduate student's life. They basically make connections for them to get jobs after school, as well as if they say the work can't go in a certain direction, the student's lost. He, he has, they have no recourse. And it, I had even less because I had already left another graduate advi- uh, advisor. And then I went to him as my second one. I mean, wh- what do you go to a third? Right, I right. mean, he knew I was already susceptible. So I truly thought, and that's what he said. He thought he moved me away from this research. He thought that he had sufficient control over me that I would abandon it. Wow. So he abandons your research. What happens next? You get connected with this other administrator um, and he kind of picks it up from there. Well, so it uh, it took a couple months. Basically, the professor himself didn't want to, to support it because he was not involved in the design of the study. He wasn't there from the beginning. He has his own students. He basically just agreed to be on my committee as a favor. Mm -hmm. So I had four professors on my committee. Uh, Basically, none of them were really abortion experts because you can only imagine that pro-choice abortion researchers would want nothing to do with me. So I had to get like a historian, a law school professor, a biologist, and then uh, Rick, all of whom were pro-choice, none of whom were even sympathetic for discussions about when life begins and whether fetuses have rights. So this professor, he basically tried to get me to go to anyone else who would support me. So I had made requests of probably dozens of professors to help me continue my research, and they all stonewalled me. And I was finally ready to give up after a series of meetings with this professor. And finally, I think he just kind of felt he felt such um, he felt such a duty, you know, to support somebody else's research who was like doing honest research, who had committed so much to it. Like he described me as a serious researcher. When I said when I've asked him, you know, why did you step out? He said, you seemed like a serious person doing serious research. And quite frankly, I could basically I, I couldn't live with myself if I allowed uh, Rick to, to stop you. Now, he required that I actually write a narrative about all of the events because he himself was a bit worried to step out on that branch and to go against the professor who had a lot of power, especially at the school. So I had to write this five page letter describing everything that had happened. And uh, it was only then that he felt comfortable. So he signed off on my ethics uh, application. So this is almost unprecedented. What happens is any graduate student, when they apply for approval from the ethics committee, they're not applying. A professor is applying because the the student doesn't have the clout to do a research project on their own. They need a professor to approve it. So my first professor who approved it was Rick. Once he said he didn't want to approve it anymore, he had to get swapped out for this other professor. So I'm told that this almost never happens. It only happens when a professor dies, when somebody moves to a different institution, or there is a huge scandal. In my case, it was simply that he chose not to continue. And we even have to think about what is the precedent of that, that any graduate student advisor, once the data doesn't fit what they wanted, because that's the thing, maybe he thought that biologists were actually going to be split on it. Maybe he thought pro-choice biologists would be like, screw this, no way I'm admitting that it's a human. Well, and so I guess that's that's a good question, that the one-tenth of your research that you had already done at this point, was it 
leaning in a certain direction. I mean, aside from, so you had a few people who were like, don't insult my intelligence by asking me these very basic, obvious biological questions. Right. But you know, did you have, did you have responses that they were like, yes, of course. Yeah. At the time it was 95% of about 700 biologists had said that a human's life begins at fertilization. I even had data to suggest. So I asked two sets of question before they knew it was about abortion. And then after I had asked some questions about abortion, so they understood the context and there was actually early data that suggested they changed their answers. So they would answer the same question differently once they knew it was about abortion. It was within a different context. Right. Because now I know saying it's a human might have some impact on abortion rights, which for my ideology is really important. So I'm going to actually shift it. And this wasn't like significant. It wasn't like it went from 95% to 10%. But this was just early, uh, early data had suggested that. Um, So I definitely think it's the case that he, he didn't think that it would be as overwhelming of a consensus that it turned out. And I think that might have been particularly threatening. And I think if I I haven't been able to talk to him since I graduated, but I think if if you were to talk to him, I think he would say that this is what he predicted. He predicted that the study would be, you know, taken up by pro-life and conservative groups. And this is not what he wanted. He didn't want the the school or himself to be associated with it. Well, and this is this is exactly what we were just talking about before we started recording that. I really believe a lot of people who refuse to say that life begins at conception, what they're really refusing to do is to even allow themselves to go there and asking that question. And I think that academia, you know, like the implication is that it's a place where you can ask honest questions and investigate things thoroughly and really seek out truth. But how do you seek out truth if you can't even ask the question? Um, that's the biggest thing for me. And, you know, I mean, I I was a political science student and I had professors who were a little bit more apologetic to the more conservative political arguments. But even that, I felt like there were insinuations that were not welcome in class. Right. And it really is not so much like, how dare you suggest that as much as how dare you ask a question that we might not like the answer to. Right. And I I mean, ostensibly, that that was the biggest research finding that I had, you know, we'll say for academia. So there's a Mm -hmm. difference between what is of interest to conservatives, to politicos, and what is interesting to researchers. So what was most interesting to researchers was this was one of the first times that somebody had demonstrated that liberals are inclined to use what's called identity protective cognition in order to avoid difficult questions. So basically what this means is there's a difference between if somebody asks you a question, you dealing with it honestly and giving an answer irrespective of what the outcome might be, or if you're afraid that if you give an answer that conflicts with what those in your social group believe, that there can actually be consequences for you. So what you do is you don't say what's actually true. You say what members of your group believe to be true. And that's because if you go against that group, if you go against that huddle, you can be ostracized. You can lose emotional support, financial support. I mean, you know, there were even survival tactic. It's it's basically a survival tactic. I mean, there are uh, psychologists who suggest that we we did not um, develop 
develop to be able to say what objective truth is, we develop to say what other people agree with. Perceived truth is. Yeah, perceived truth, yes. And mine was some of the first research that showed that uh, liberal Democrats are likely to do this. So basically, it's been argued in other contexts that conservatives don't agree with scientists on things that conflict with their their ideology or their religion or their worldview. And mine was overwhelming evidence that liberals, I mean, under uh, it was 23 percent of pro-choice Americans mm-hmm. recognized a human's life beginning at fertilization only 23% compared to 95% of biologists. Wow. So this was one of those clear cases where, I mean, these people are educated. Most of them were college educated. They know science. So how is it that their their understanding of that question is so different? And it's because they are not answering based on their understanding of biology. They're answering based on their ideology. What do you think this reality does to the authenticity of academic research? Like knowing, so uh, I think that what you're saying could be applied to a lot of things outside of abortion. Um, Maybe things that we aren't even as privy to the potential for that sort of cognitive, you know, decision making um, because it's a less controversial issue or it's an issue that's not so much in the public eye. Um, but I don't know, I guess, what do you think, what kind of threat does this pose to honest learning and honest investigation of important issues? Right. So, I mean, you could, you can look at Jonathan Haidt's work, uh, Jonathan Haidt's work. So he was actually, um, a postdoc, a student of Rick Schwader, and he has exposed this more than anybody. So he has this, uh, this, uh, Academy called the Heterodox Academy, where they basically expose this kind of bias. He's famous for, he was one of the first to point this out. He was at a talk, a social psychology talk, I believe it was, and he had asked the audience, how many of you are Republicans versus how many are Democrats? And it was like a couple people were Republican compared to Democrats. So it is the case that there is tremendous ideological bias and it is hampering research. So even in the abortion debate, if you look at a lot of research on abortion, most of the hypotheses are so-called liberal hypotheses. So when they ask questions, when they do studies, they try to expose conservatives and pro-lifers as sexist, as having regressive ideas on science. They try to paint them in the most negative light possible. And few ask the questions of maybe there's a difference in their views on when life begins. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a difference in how much they value children. Mm -hmm. So it is the case that all of these areas of study, I do think it goes far beyond abortion. Mm-hmm. Mine, is, I, I think abortion is just one of the starkest examples, and it's because it's the one that's most threatening to them. I mean, I, when, I, when I help people you know, try to understand the abortion bait, I put it this way. One side sees abortion access as necessary for a gender-equal society. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, to them, there is no greater issue. That without abortion access, it is as if we are in the fictional world of Gilead from Handmaid's Tale, if anybody gets that reference. But they believe that that will make women second-class citizens. Some law professors have written that it would make them slaves, that it's forced labor 
that that wow. without abortion act, legal abortion access, that women are relegated to second class citizens, right? Mm-hmm. So for them, it is the biggest existential crisis. And then for pro-lifers, they see it as the greatest human rights violation the world has ever seen. 56 million humans die from abortion worldwide each year, which is the same number that die from all other causes combined. AIDS, obesity, cancer, old age. Mm -hmm. You know, since the year 2000, that means over a billion humans have been killed in abortion. So when you think of that, that juxtaposition, that one side sees it as women will be slaves without abortion access. And the other side sees that we basically are having dozens of holocausts every, every couple decades right. with, uh, with abortion access. I mean, it, 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 it's very clear why the, this is one of those clear examples of how ideology can restrict our understanding, can restrict right. our research. Well, and the way that when you frame it that way, so Stephanie Gray is a, you know, we talk about her a lot. She's a um, a pro-life activist from Canada who's been doing this, I think, for 15 or 20 years almost. Um, And she talks, she explains, sort of gives that context as the reason that it's so polarizing, because if, if the liberals who believe that abortion is like the ultimate equalizer amongst the sexes, um, if they're right, then we, the pro-life people, are sexist and we hate women. Right. But if we're right, they're effectively killing babies. They're, oh, they're murderers. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think this all the time. And I even think it about myself because I think about, you know, I, I was involved in pro-life stuff throughout high school and for years after that. And I, I always think about, like, why even now is it not emotional on a daily basis. And I think there are people who it does feel emotional for them, but I mean, for people like you and me, we, yeah, our lives are devoted to it and we do this work, but, but it's not, it's not emotional in the sense that I don't spend time throughout my day weeping about the catastrophe of abortion. And it, the only thing I can think is that because of the lack of visibility on the issue, because the baby is inside the womb, we can't see that baby. And also because abortion itself is so hidden. It's so covered up by the industry, by the, you know, we've talked about their, their weak point really is the, um, disposal of those bodies. That's right. their weak point because that's the tangible thing that we can look at and see. Yeah. Um, but I feel like for that reason, because it's not visible, it almost doesn't feel real. Like you say those yeah. numbers and they feel abstract and they're not abstract. They're entirely legitimate. Right. But I think that is, th- that's the thing that that's a challenge. I think for us is sure. how do we make this tangible for people who that just feels like, like a number. There's a famous quote that, uh, one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. Totally. And it's just that the human mind, and I totally understand what you're saying. Uh, actually, sometimes when I mention it, I, I have misgivings about mentioning those statistics because I don't even know if I could deliver them with the emotional weight required, mm-hmm. where it's almost like I'm undercutting the number by just saying it without tears in my eyes. Right. So I, I totally understand what you're saying. And, you know, by no means do I do I exhibit the kind of emotion on a daily basis that I would if I fully got it. So I, I totally right. understand what you're saying. I probably torture myself a little more than you do. <laughs> I, I look at things I, I shouldn't. I watch things I wish I hadn't. But that's because, I mean, 
you know, I, I heard Jordan Peterson give a give a talk recently, and he was talking about how creativity comes from torture. It comes from suffering. It comes from a person who needs to be so tortured by something that they have to find another, you know, a way out of this. Right. And I I will be honest when, when I think about like, why, why did I do this research? Why, why was I able to create research that had a big impact? You know, which the thing is, obviously I'm not getting rich off of it. It's not like (laughs) anybody pays me when I, when I participate, let's keep it in perspective. But I mean, it is interesting that I think my doubt, my dissertation at this point has been downloaded like 6,000 times, which if you compare it to every other PhD student in the University of Chicago, I mean, wow. you're talking most people, it's five, 10 people <laughs> downloading it. So I wonder like, why did it, how, how was I fortunate enough to have an impact with my dissertation? Most people, the joke is only your mom reads it. <laughs> that your committee doesn't even read it. Uh, oh. So how how is it? And I don't even know that they're reading it. I just know they're downloading it. But uh, that hurts so me I, a little to know there are people <laughs> spending years of their life on this stuff and then. Oh, I, I could show you it. the website. So it shows the oh, downloads painful. for the dissertation, and it's like one, two, five. Like the biggest I saw was like twenty. You know, and then oh mine it was one thousand in a day after yeah. a Quillette piece came out. You know, right. and it was because people were so interested in it. But when I think about that, I mean, I will be honest. I have torn myself about this Mm -hmm. you know that's that is the only way to understand how does somebody you know I I did work for a summer at a corporate law firm I could have made a ton of money at one and instead I went into something where basically everybody who I had acquainted myself with during grad school no one talks to me anymore I am persona non grata I had a, a, a first year student who just started reach out to me on Twitter a couple weeks ago and said they are saying the worst possible things about you. Wow. They're making it seem like they that you wanted to take down the school, that you wanted to take down the department, that you have an axe to grind with the, with uh, Rick. And I'm like, if you could see, you know, I've sent letters to Rick. He hasn't responded to any <laughs> since this all happened. And I mean, I just let him know I am so grateful to him still yeah. for everything he did. Because if he wouldn't have been that oasis right. that I needed in 2014, None of this would have happened. I'm, right. I'm big on gratitude. I don't believe in entitlement. I was not entitled to have him continue. Right. I don't think he should have abandoned me, but that that's neither here nor there. Right. I'm not entitled to anything. If that was allowed within the rules, that's okay. That's on his own ethics. Right. So it, but it's just, it's fascinating to me that I went down this path of just basically making myself a pariah, which I've had a lot of support from the pro-life movement, a lot of nice things said to me from conservatives. And trust me when I say I appreciate it immensely mm-hmm. because all I get from the other side is just hate and the craziest accusations from people. And I mean, I'm called a fraud, you right. know, Yeah. and here I was, I just wanted to answer a question. Like that was what my dissertation was about is there a way for the debate to move forward right that was what my focus was on you know roe v wade it was suggested by the supreme court that it was a compromise meant to end the national controversy surrounding abortion uh supreme court justice said that was the only the second time the supreme court had been called to do that the first time was brown v board which was over uh, school segregation mm-hmm. so roe v wade was meant to be a compromise and it failed 
clearly the debate has gotten worse, right? Yeah, yeah. And then in 1992 with Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they yeah. tried again to make a compromise. It failed. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to see as a mediator, right. is there a way for this debate to move forward? And I, I ended up, uh, what I found based on uh, Americans' responses, it was that the laws would need to be consistent with European laws, which is permitted in the first trimester, illegal thereafter, mm-hmm. and greater supports for pregnant people. Uh, and that's something I don't agree with. But that was what I made a recommendation as. So when people impugn my character, it's like, just look at what the dissertation right. recommended. If it was really me, I would have never recommended that. Right. It, I truly, that document, I, I would defend it till you know I run out of breath because um, I truly believe I took myself out of it. Right. That was just as an objective researcher who admittedly has more expansive uh, understanding of the debate than most because I wasn't just limited to one side. And I had the pro-choice people pushing me to make sure I was representing it from both sides. Right. What do you what do you think this we've talked about this a lot. What do you think this research, which I don't know, I personally feel it's pretty conclusive. It's art, numbers you can't argue with. Right. What do you feel this should mean for the debate, the abortion debate moving forward? So in Roe v. Wade, uh, Justice Blackman, who issued the opinion, he said that there exists no consensus on when a human's life begins. And based on that, he said Texas can't restrict abortion. Texas was the state that was uh, that had the law at question in Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. So he said Texas cannot restrict abortion at, at conception and fetuses cannot have rights because it was so, an open question. OK, so I just want to. Let's quantify that for a second, because what you're telling me is that a very foundational point made, that was in Roe v. Wade, you said, right? Yes. Okay, in Roe v. Wade. Yes. You're telling me that your research at a top university in the country that you was approved by an an, an ethics board was totally, I mean, it's legit. Yeah. It's all legit. It's conclusive making an affirmative point that yes it is conclusive this is when life begins we know when life begins and it's this particular point yeah 96 percent of over 5500 biologists who were surveyed and this was a 85 percent pro-choice sample 92 percent were democrats they were all liberal the, the, because that's who are biologists that's yeah. who are academics so these were these were people who did not want to say something that supported you know overturning roe right. v wade but they admitted the truth and now the supreme court when they take it up again when they when they consider roe v wade which they might with this case coming up uh, regarding a uh, louisiana law they while they don't necessarily need to take a particular stance on abortion, they can. I really don't see how they could continue to ignore the reality that there is a consensus on when life begins. Right. And not only is there a consensus, I can't even point you to one scientific theory that puts it at another point in development. Right. They're literally, I mean, I could point you to tons of ideological philosophical, legal arguments that it begins at viability or it becomes at, begins at birth. But from a scientific perspective, I can't even show you another theory. It, it is like definitional. Right. To those who know this, I mean, it like I said, some pro-choice biologists, they said it's an insult that I'm even asking them this question. Right. Well, and so that, what, exa- what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, that's why now we're hearing things about infanticide. We hear things about personhood and when personhood begins, which personhood 
my, my self-awareness doesn't really begin, I would say until you're at least two years old. Oh, right. Um, so again, it's this, it's this, now we are weighing into this infanticide ground sure. that it isn't about the science anymore. And right. you know, that's the funny thing with the left is that they've always claimed that we have ignored science. Mm-hmm. Reality is such that none of their arguments are based in science. They're all based in relativity and, yeah. and things that we, we can't quantify, that we can't say hard and fast, this is the moment that it's not right anymore. Sure. And I mean, that is one of the interesting things is that while I was doing this, I was like, oh no, like they're moving past me. So mm-hmm. I was doing research on when life begins because mm-hmm. that cl- seemed to be the clear point at which people restricted abortion. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they started defending infanticide practically by mm-hmm. opposing the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, the right. survivors of abortion. Right. So that that was interesting. But I mean, I did find in my research that 93% of Americans say that a human's life is deserving of protection once it begins. If you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this is the United Nations document. It's a charter that explains what our rights are. The uh, Article 6 says all humans are deserving of protection as persons uh, end point, you know, all are right. deserving of recognition a, as persons. So when we ask, is a human a person, that's really more of a philosophical move that pro-choice people make to try to separate what it is to be a human versus what it is to be a person. If you look at Supreme Court justices, they've actually said that if it is shown that there's no difference between a fetus and a human, then it would deserve protection under the 14th Amendment. Same rights. So they've said it is a person if it's a human. The 14th Amendment, it describes persons, not not humans, right? But even in 1868, the senators who were at, uh, around the time of the ratification, they said that this was designed to protect all weak and helpless human beings. They didn't have some philosophical concept for, right. well, person it really should be at this point, or it should be when you're sentient or viable. Right. All this gobbledygook that they basically invent it was just meant to be like i said earlier in my research on ethics that all humans are persons right so i mean when when you ask me a question like what could this mean for the abortion debate i mean i i personally think especially roe v wade we already know that it's a human you know this was just more research that was supposed to help people see that even the the objective experts on the pro-choice side even they agree because anytime you give people a quote from an embryology textbook, anytime you give them Senate testimony uh, where biologists testify to say a human's life begins at fertilization, they always say that was just one person that that person's probably pro-life. We can't trust them. So I just wanted to show that this is conclusively the case, even amongst pro-choicers. Right. What do you, so, and I mean, this can kind of be our final thought you know, you know, there's debate within the pro-life community about the extent to which we should bring spirituality into the conversation. Um, I think you were obviously painted in a certain light while you were in academia, um, that people automatically want to put the Christian stamp on you and then they want to just delegitimize everything you've ever done. Oh, sure. And I guess I'm curious, how do you proceed with that? And and then also, how has your spirituality played 
a role in all of this or how, what's the relationship like now? Because I mean, you and I've had the conversation I say all the time and I believe it. It's true. Every single pro-choice activist who was in some shape or form pivotal on the pro-choice side and then made a significant conversion simultaneously made that conversion from pro-choice to pro-life. And they almost made, and, uh, you know, uh, atheism to Christianity or, you know, just agnosticism to Christianity, whatever. Right. Um, there is a clear connection there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's also why the other side's able to do that because there is a connection there. Sure. So I'm just curious what your take on that is. You know, do you feel like that's been something that you've experienced or is it something that you kind of try to avoid? What do you, what do you, what is your thought about that? Right. So, I mean, in all honesty, when I was a young child, I think it probably was more religious. You know, it wasn't like when I was eight years old and I was explaining how I thought abortion was wrong, that I was, you know, citing to the the UDHR and United uh, Nations documents. Um, But for me, the reason why I, I did not make any mention of spirituality, God, Christianity in my research is it was important for me almost as a test for myself. Is this true? I, I think yeah. one, one thing, especially being in that environment, you have to understand every conversation I have, this is a little less true today than it was, let's say months <laughs> or years ago. I'm ready to be disproven. I, I mean, it's almost scary sometimes, especially when you've written so much on a topic right. and so much of you is identified with that. But I'm ready for somebody to show me that I'm wrong, that, you know, I see this as a logical game. You know, when it's purely in the domain of logic, there is a truth. Mm-hmm. There is an answer based on other concepts, like based on the playing field that we set, which I set one of human rights and the Constitution. I'm ready to, for somebody to come out and expose me. But it just never happens because ultimately what I what I take from this is, you know, we are absolutely on the side of right, okay? Mm-hmm. From from a logical perspective, from a constitutional perspective, it is a human rights violation. Fetuses deserve rights. I think there's a question as to, in some limited circumstances, is it possible that a pregnant person's rights supersedes the fetus's rights? We, we could get into that conversation, but ultimately for the over 95% of elective abortions, those, those should be illegal. Those, those are a violation of our human rights principles, our laws, morality, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, for me, it was just important for me to basically test it out on their playing field. That's why I didn't invoke Christianity. Um, as to how it played a role, though, you know, my mom did a lot of praying with <laughs> her, uh, the parishioners at her church. And I can't say that God didn't play a huge role in my work. It's just I didn't necessarily cite to him. He wasn't right. central to my arguments. But truthfully, there is no way I, I would have been able to go through all this without him playing a huge role in my my own life fortifying me, inspiring me, and then as well as through like prayer from others. Um, As to how we move forward, I actually, I don't make any recommendations. I don't tell anybody that they shouldn't invoke religion because in all honesty, I get accused of being a Catholic like all the time. (laughs) 
because and I'm and not, Catholic, not Catholic, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I because I That's suggest really that life begins at fertilization. So I have like some crazy pro-choicers who say like that's a Catholic belief and because of Catholics that's like hilarious. that's the only reason you believe that and they'll just like keep calling me I'm like I'm not Catholic I'm not not that there'd be anything wow. wrong with that but like so I personally think you're going to be accused of being a Christian anyways so if you feel like yeah. it's important for you to invoke that in your ministry in your advocacy in those conversations I have no problem with it I think you should do it it's just Mine was a unique circumstance where how did I survive in that lion's den? And I I did it by not calling on his name. Uh, But even then, I mean, I have misgivings. Maybe I should have. I really don't know. I just I just trusted that, you know, with the Holy Spirit in me that I would do what was right for me in that situation. Um, But as to other people. Um, you know, I, I certainly, let's just say I have a great appreciation of the pro-life atheists, the secular pro-lifers who show that this is not just a religious argument, because if it were the case that we, that all pro-lifers were religious, then they could more easily dismiss it. If it were the case today that 95% of pro-lifers were atheist and secular, they couldn't use that argument anymore right. or they couldn't use right. it well, even though we do know they, they accuse pro-lifers of being uh, misogynist and men trying to control women, even though we know over half of pro-lifers are women. <laughs> so, I mean, actually, I don't know if they wouldn't in that it's case. Amazing. Maybe they still would, you know. Yeah. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much for giving me this uh, chance to talk to your audience, Mary-Kate. Yeah. And I mean, it's been a harrowing experience and you have no idea like how much it meant that I I was able to join your organization because like I didn't know if I was going to be driving Uber after this. <laughs> I just took a blind leap and I just told myself it wasn't about protecting my career. It wasn't about money. Like I just felt truly called to do this. It was just something that was burning in my mind yeah. and I did it. And I mean, I'm lucky that, you know, yeah, I have a job. I guess gainful God. employment's pretty important <laughs> after 10 years of uh, academia and student yeah. loans. So. oh boy cool well thanks so much steve i appreciate it it was great conversation the longest yet a minute an hour and two minutes which that's pretty good i feel like we really condensed a lot and that's in that very small period of time actually i said i'm a bit of a talker my my apologies i know you all probably so good it's checked out at 20 minutes but that's okay no no offense i will write about in my diary tonight how upset i am over that but no it's totally fine thanks steve i appreciate it (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.